You're listening to the Exeter Vineyard Church podcast. New episodes each week. To watch the full video version of this podcast, head over to our website, www.exe.vin forward slash podcasts. So we are working our way through the book of Ruth. We're do, uh, not doing this in any particularly organized fashion. We're just taking two sessions per chapter. It's a small book in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters long. It's set about 1,000 years before Jesus. So we're, re- we're reading stuff that happened 3,000 years ago. Um, and we're just taking our time. We're actually, uh, and we're just allowing what, um, you know, for the people who are doing the talks to just look at the chapter and think, what, what do I feel God's nudging me to, to share with everyone else? Um, so we're on to Ruth chapter 3, and I'm doing this, t- this time, and Lizzie is doing it. We've got a little bit of a break because of Joyfest, then Lizzie's going to be doing it. And I was talking to Lizzie like, a couple of weeks ago, and she said, yeah, chapter 3 has got lots of problematic power dynamics in it. It's you know, an interesting one. When we read it you know, with our modern minds, uh, there's like a big sense that Ruth, the, the hero of the book, has no agency you know, to use all these modern words, and is kind of like no agency and loses all her agency to Boaz's, the guy's power and privilege. And I think when we read stuff like this, especially, you know, in the Bible, we can feel like we're so much more advanced as we read this. You know, like we've, we have developed so much more. We're so much more civilized. We have such a better understand. Um, but it is interesting to pause and even think about that thought because we think, you know, like, Well, we've moved on, we've developed, we've progressed from this kind of like way of thinking. But really, the natural state of being would be gender inequality. That would be the natural state. It's just generally, you know, normally, in a general sense, men are stronger, more powerful than women and have been able to lord over women, you know, forever. That's the kind of natural state. And actually, that's some of the thinking that's going on now. People are talking about this. But the Bible is counterintuitive to that. So right at the start, we see that men and women were created equally in the image of God. And then throughout Jesus' life, he is countercultural with his attitude to women. And specifically, there's two, these two instances. The first person he ever says, I am the promised Messiah, is to a woman. And the first people to witness that he has been raised from the dead are women. So Jesus is countercultural uh, to all of that. And then that gets developed by Paul who says things like, there's, once we're in Jesus, there's no male or female. We're all equal before God. Um, but what's really interesting for us, you know, in the 2023, is that biblical influence has become so deeply ingrained in us, you know, it has had such an influence on the development of Western culture, Western society, that we don't know where it's come from. So we have this thing, thought that, oh, this is just natural progress. We have just progressed like this. We are much more developed and educated than they were. So this is how we've arrived at that state. But the only reason we've arrived there is because the Bible has shaped, you know, this way of thinking has had such a significant influence in the way that society works. So that's why it's really interesting because people read this, you know, it's set, and then they they kind of think, oh, well, I'm going to dismiss this. This is the Bible. It's just reinforces all these things that we are now moved on from and the Bible's regressive and it's carrying us back and they don't realize the reason they think like that is because of the influence 
Christianity have. This, this way of thinking wasn't in classical Greece or Rome or the Persian Empire or anywhere else, you know, Celtic Britain. No, no one really thought like this. This is a biblical uh, change that has happened to us. So we need to read it understanding it was set in a certain culture and r- understand that actually it is that story that we're reading that has influenced the way we see it. So the Bible's full of stuff that we look at and we think, that's a bit rubbish. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff in the Bible because it's recording how messed up people are working. But it's really the story of God working throughout that. So reading it kind of cold it is a bit problematic. So what we're going to do today, we'll look at the story and see how weird it is. And then we're going to say, well, actually, in the culture, this is what it would mean. And then there's this kind of prophetic view that I want to talk about today for us. And I also did just want to say, because this is something I feel is quite important. I didn't know, I've just researched a lot of this. You know, I knew the story. So a lot of what I'm going to say today is going to sound really clever. And I think there is this, you know, I don't, we want to get away from that gap between people in the congregation and the person up the front. And, you know, so sometimes you can do this and think, oh, God, they just know so much. You know, and then people like ask me for advice because they think that I'm, and actually, you know, like I've just, my job is just to, you know, read a page ahead or whatever. So I've just looked this up. So it's, you know, you get that thing where people go, oh, in the original Greek or in the original Hebrew, they, they don't speak Greek or Hebrew. They've Googled it, you know, or they've listened to someone else tell it. So uh, I've done a lot of that this week. So as we go this, because I'm going to use some technical terms and I thought, well, I could just impress people, or it's better just to be true about it. So, anyway, the story of Ruth so far, it's just four chapters. I'd read it. It's, a, it's just very much a narrative story. You know, there's no uh, kind of philosophy, really, in it. It's just a story. So, this is set in a time when the nation of Israel was really dysfunctional. There's lots of lawlessness. You know, there's lots of rubbish going on, and there's, uh, you know, uh, continued threats from neighboring nations. It's all really a hard time. Uh, and there's a famine in the land. So this guy called Elimelech goes with his wife, Naomi, and two, ki- two sons. They leave. They live in Bethlehem. They leave Bethlehem. They travel to a neighboring, ma- neighboring nation, uh, Moab, where, there's, where there isn't famine. So they, um, they go there. They're there for 10 years. In that 10 years, Elimelech and the two sons both die, but well, the two sons get married, then they die. So Naomi is a widow, but she's got these two daughters-in-laws, and then she hears, oh, everything's good back in Israel, let's go back. So she heads back. One of the daughter-in-laws stays in her nation with her family, but the other daughter-in-law called Ruth says, no, I want to go with you. I want your God to be my God, your people to be my people, and goes with. So they arrive back, in Bethlehem, and they have no, they are basically destitute. And so the way that they can uh, get some income is Ruth goes out and follows with their harvest in the barley harvest. She f- they're going there, and she's following behind and picking up the grains that, she's, that they've missed. And they end up, she starts, the first field she goes to by random belongs to a guy called Boaz. And Boaz is a good guy. And so he finds that he asks his workers, who's that? Oh, okay. And he says, look, look after her, keep her safe, protect her. You know, some, there's this suggestion because it's a lawless time that some of the neighboring farms wouldn't be so kind or nice. She was very vulnerable. Protect her, give her water, and start leaving. Like, deliberately don't pick up everything. You know, leave stuff for her to find. So that's going on. And then we hit Ruth 3. So Ruth 3 
as a kind of read it as we would, might read it now, it seems like Naomi starts plotting. The mother-in-law, she's like, we need to kind of sort this situation out because the harvests are ending. So that's going to. So she goes, you know, that Boaz is a nice guy. So Ruth, what I want you to do is put on your nicest dress, have some of this Chanel Number no. Five, spray it all over you. Uh, I want you to pick the time very carefully. He's going to be eating and drinking. And after he's eating and drinking, I want you to sneak in when he's asleep and uh, approach him and, uh, and then kind of do all this stuff. So it feels really, like, weird. You know, if you read it, like, with our modern eyes, it feels a bit like a manipulative honey trap where Ruth is the bait and Boaz is buying a wife and all this stuff going on. Um, so I just want to talk about what's really going on as they read it. And so it all revolves around the first verse of chapter 3, which says this. One day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Now, this is one of those terms that I didn't know till I found it on, on the internet. Uh, Ruth has a chiastic structure. Okay, So a chiastic literature is it builds arguments up to a peak and then it repeats those arguments in reverse order. So the saying, that when the going gets tough, the tough gets going, is a chiastic s statement because it's about going and being tough, then tough and going, and all that. So there, you can have this structure. It's very common in the Bible. So there are these kind of like themes that are picked up, and then it hits this point, and then those themes are kind of revisited, but with a different view, you know, that are uh, saluted. So this is the crux of the story where the problems that have been... Uh, uh, talked about in the first half, meet the top, and then they progressively get solved as we go through the second half of the book. So their situation is they have no long-term security. These two widows, they have no family to look after them, no children to look after them. They are, uh, they've been able to beg during the harvest, you know, glean the leftovers at the harvest, but they've done the barley harvest, and then about six weeks later, the wheat harvest, there are no more harvests. So they've got the rest of the year to go through with no way, apart from begging, of getting income. So um, this, when it says permanent home, the, in some translations it will say rest or security. This, this word, the Hebrew word, I don't know what the Hebrew word is, but the word can be translated permanent home, rest or security. It's this idea of a rest that's more than just putting your feet up on a Sunday afternoon and watching, you know, the football. It's about this uh, state of being where you are free from anxiety, free from fear, free from striving. It is a kind of significant and sacred word uh, or idea for the in the Bible, and it reminds us of the seventh day of cre creation. You remember God's doing all this creating over these six stages, and then often we think, oh, the sixth one was important because that's when we were made and I say look get over yourself it's not all about you because the seventh day is the key day because that's when all of creation and God are in connection community and rest together on the seventh day the Lord rested so it's this kind of idea of like how do we find that state so it's not just I want to find you a husband so you've got somewhere to live it's like how do we find how do I get you into this state where you are secure you have rest um because to be outside of the the, you know, as a family-based society, to be outside of that network is really uh, vulnerable for people. You, there was no state pension or social security or benefits. You know, your children were your pension. So if you don't have children, you have 
once you can't do, uh, earn money, you are, you know, you're, you have no, no safety at all. And also, in the way of thinking, your connection to the nation was through the family line. So the land that they work on belongs to the family. Actually, in the next chapter, it talks about, you know, we, uh, what's happening is, is thought of about like who's going to have the land that Elimelech owns, or is it just going to go? Because only men, I mean, it's all the patriarchy, isn't it? But it's uh, only men can own the land. So that's the, your connection to be part of the nation is through the male line. This is one of the reasons that genealogies are so important in the Bible. And like, you know, I don't know what my, I can tell you the names of my great-great-grandparents. Yeah, but, you know, they're going back like 20 generations in the Bible because it's such an important idea of our connection to the nation is through the family line. So Elimelech's two sons are dead, so he has, his name won't be continued. No one will remember his name. There is no roots in the nation because that line is about to die out. And because of this, in the uh, in the law, the Jewish law, there was this provision that when a brother dies without having children, the widow is then becomes the responsibility of the other brother or another brother to continue the line. So the other brother then gets the widow pregnant, marries the widow, gets her pregnant, but that child is considered to be the child of the dead brother. Okay, we don't do that nowadays, so... <laughs> But that's, this, is, this just shows like how important it was for the, the line, your family line, to continue. That is your legacy. No one's talking about, you know, like what someone achieved in, you know, they set up this business and they built it to this big. Your legacy is only, you know, in your, your children. So, um, so in the book, oh, we're not going to read it, but in the story, so she says, I need to find you a home. Boaz not only is a nice guy, but he is related to Elimelech. So he, is, he has this provision in the law. He has this responsibility or opportunity, whichever way you see it, of continuing the line. And so Naomi, who understands the Jewish culture, is saying, "Why, you know, you can, Boaz can marry you. So she goes through all this, and there's this kind of weird thing. When he's asleep, she, she says, go and find him when he's asleep and uncover his feet and lie down at the end of his feet, which, um, so actually looking into this, one of the weirdest ways to read this that is done a, a lot is like, this is good dating advice. This is how we should, in the 23rd century, understand dating. And it's, and it's just, uh, this is problematic. You know, there's lots of like male pastors saying, oh, guys, would you like your wife to be more like Ruth? You know, she should be, and they, and they read this as a subservient thing, you know, lie on his feet, and then they say, uh, and, and guys, but maybe you should be more like Boaz. And the real problem that I found when you'd get this idea was, like, the women, they should be, look nice, smell nice, be subservient. That will make a happy marriage. And the guys, you need to be more like Boaz, who was a good moral guy. The problem with like understanding, assessing your own morality is most people, even if they're complete, you know, like, if they're not nice people, often think that they're moral. Do you know what I mean? They, I have this, you know, anyway, so this isn't dating advice. What's going on? She says, uncover his feet, and then when he wakes up, say, you know, I, I want to come under your covering. It's a symbol in the Bible, throughout the Bible, of marriage. And it's basically saying to become part of the kind of provision and protection that's going on. Uh, in marriage, and it's a, a, 
an idea that's used in the Bible for God and his people. You know, when it talks about spreading the wing, you know, we go under the shadow of God's wing. It's that same thing of coming under a covering protection. So she says uh, to do all this. And so what we've got to understand that is all that weird stuff is just cultural signaling that made sense in the day. So Boaz likes Ruth. He thinks, oh, she's lovely. Uh, but there's obviously some age gap. So he's like, she, she wouldn't want me. She'd want a younger guy, a richer guy, a guy with a six-pack, you know, a guy with a sports car, all that thing. So he's thinking, she wouldn't like me. So he knows I have this uh, legal opportunity, but I'm not going to press it because I don't want her to, I don't want to force her to marry me. I don't want it to be like that. Uh, and it turns out that Ruth likes Boaz, but she doesn't want to put him under pressure and say, well, you have to marry me because she's thinking maybe he doesn't like me. And so all of this is done. What you would read in this, if you were an original reader, is that this is just such a respectful way of doing things. So Boaz isn't pressing his claim, and Ruth does all this at night. So if Boaz says, look, I'm I mean, I'm really, you know, I'm flattered, but <laughs> I remember I had this when I was, I thought this girl, when I was 18, I thought this girl really fancied me. And other people were saying, oh, what about you and Nikki? It's all going to, you know, like, and then I went and talked to her. She was like, what? No. <laughs> so anyway, humiliation is really good for your soul. So, so she's doing this at night. So he can, without, you know, so she's not standing in front of people saying, he is obliged to marry me. I, this is my route to security. She's doing this, so he can say no as well. And it, so it really is the uh, first century BC, first millennia BC version of my mate fancies you. You know, that we used to get at school, you know, like, my mate fancies you. Do you fancy her? All that. So uh, it's all done about respect. No one's being put in a position. So I want to talk about what does all this mean? So if you read it, that's kind of what's going on in the story. What does this mean to 3,000 years, to us 3,000 years later? Well, throughout the book of Ruth, it picks up these biblical themes. And we've talked about this in the Bible, like how cleverly the story of God is constructed. Like, you know, when you have uh, a movie soundtrack and there's like in Star Wars, there's Leia's theme and it just pops up at different times to remind us of things about Princess Leia and who she is and what she's like. And so there's the main theme when she does stuff, but also at other points, they all just bring out that melody and stuff like that. Well, throughout the Bible, there's this big story of what God's doing and these themes kind of emerge at different places. And there's a big emerging of the the theme, the big story of the Bible going on in this. So the bigger picture of God's plan is picked out in miniature in this story that we're reading. So Elimelech and Naomi leave Israel because of famine and they go to a foreign land. Just like Jacob and his sons left Israel however many years earlier. I should have Googled that. I didn't. But they left Israel and they went to Egypt. So they move out because of famine. And then uh, they return back to Israel, just like the Exodus. So Moses led the children of Israel back to the, to the promised land. Well, Naomi and Ruth go back. It's not quite the same. It's not leading out in riches. It's coming back in poverty. But there's this theme going back. And in the story, scholars say Naomi represents the people of Israel, the people whom God had revealed himself to and were carrying the kind of the law and this revelation. And Ruth represents the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who find out about the God of Israel through the, through the Israelites. You know, so for, I presume, most of us like that, that situation where we were not 
raised with this as our cultural heritage, but we have all that we've found out about it is because it's come out of the the church coming out of the people of Israel. And in the story, if Naomi represents Israel, Ruth represents the Gentiles, Boaz represents Jesus. So although this story was written, like it was it's set a thousand years before, scholars think it was written at least six hundred years before Jesus. So it was written before Jesus. We see these themes coming out this foreshadowing of God's plan to rescue people. Because this rest we're talking about is actually the great plan of God's scripture. This this idea that we were designed for that seventh day of creation rest, to experience life in all its fullness without pain, suffering, without, you know, work, but work is meaningful and productive. It's not working and just getting knackered and not achieving what you wanted to achieve. All these things in the presence of God. This is the promise that God is rebuilding the universe towards this new heaven, new earth, where he is presence with us, where we live in joy. There's no tears or pain or suffering. And um, so another word we would use is salvation, this idea to get to the place where we are free from death and decay of this current broken universe. And so this rest, we see before the marriage that's going to happen to Boaz, we see kind of our situation now where we are the rest, the security we get is got from the gleanings of the leftover of harvest. And this is all of our experience when we are doing anything. This, you know, we go through life thinking, once that happens, then I will have achieved, you know, whatever our version of rest is. You know, like, uh, you know, I'm going to get my dream job. And, and once I got that job, and look, it pays this much, and I'll have this respect, and, you know, I'll, I'll do this and that. And then we get it, and then we're like oh man, it's really stressful, and actually it doesn't turn out, it's, it's not giving me as much money as I would like, and all these things, or, you know, our education, once I get this qualification, then I can relax, and then we, we, get, and then we find out lots of other people also have that same qualification, and it doesn't give us our dream ticket. I was thinking, I was talking to someone the other day about having kids, you know, like, there's all these things where you're like, well, if we can get pregnant, at least then we can relax. Get pregnant, like, yes, we've got, oh, 12-week scan. Okay, well, as long as it's a 12-week scan, then we can relax. 20-week scan, then it's birth, and then it's like, are they going to sleep? Are they going to eat? How are they going to get on at school? Like this. I heard someone told me that she was talking to a lady in an, in a lady who was like 90, and she said, oh, finally I can rest. And she said, oh, why? She goes, because my youngest child is now in a nursing home. <laughs> So that's like, it's just, it never ends. It never ends. Do you remember, or, or even, you know, we think we'll find our rest with another person. Does, does anyone remember the film The Beach? Uh, when, is it Leonardo DiCaprio? I can't remember the main character. And he says that thing, he goes, you know, there's that quirk about someone. And you think, oh, that's the cutest, most wonderful quirk. I love that quirky thing they do. I love it. And then that becomes the thing that irritates <laughs> you the most about them. Like that. So we, we are just, we can't find rest in the gleanings because we're made to find it in God. You know, it's good for, if we, if that thing satisfied you fully, what a, you know, tiny person we would be. We are made for this wonderful rest that only comes from God. And so we, that rest comes in a relationship with God, which the Bible represents as a marriage, which this story is working towards, this marriage of Ruth to Boaz. And so 
I just thought the one thing that I'd like us to think about out of this is what Ruth is doing. So Ruth is kind of held up as this a great embodiment of what it is to uh, pursue a relationship with God to find this security and this rest. And one of the things that's picked out of her is how she is faithful uh, and she just does the right thing. So she does the right thing by her mother-in-law. She doesn't abandon her. She stays with her. And then she does the right thing at every stage. She is a good person and all this. And it's this faithful service as she works in the field. Um, you know, and she doesn't try and find, you know, doesn't try and go other places because it might be better. She's just faithful and, and good. And I think this can be a picture of our contribution towards the harvest, this other biblical uh, idea of God's kingdom, this fulfillment of the repairing of the, the universe and God living with us is the gathering of the great harvest to come in. You know, like it's that celebration, they have a feast, everything's good, we've got a bumper harvest, we, you know, everything's wonderful. That is what we're looking forward to. So it uses this as the work we get to do for the kingdom now. The things that we get to do. So creation happened and there was beauty and perfection. And, and God tells human beings, go and bring order. You know, like go and work the fields and look after the animals and steward creation. Then it all gets broken and there's disorder and chaos and there's death and decay. And so this idea that for us the work of the kingdom is to continue what God put in us as human beings is to bring order and beauty to the world around us, to a world we find that is disordered and ugly. And so we see in Galatians 5, it says the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, another, you know, the harvest of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, and, and a number of other ones, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control, patience, um, I don't know, low-carb, you know, all these, all these other things that are, that are important. So it's us, how that, how we allow God to work those things in us and overflow into the world around us. And in three weeks' time, I think, we're going to do Joy Fest. So Joy Fest, there are a number of churches doing this together. It's this idea that we uh, take this very idea and we go out and we do things that bring joy to other people, to make them smile. And just like Jesus says, let your light shine before men so they'll see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We're not doing this so we, we bring joy to someone and they go, isn't Dave a nice guy? So we have this easy way to connect it to God. So we say, I'm doing, I, you know, I've made you a cake because my church is taking part in this thing called Joy Fest. And so there's just that really gentle connection, like this is an outworking of being part of God's church, of, of my faith, all those things. And um. And so two encouragements to do this. So one, Ruth just works the field she finds herself in. And so often we tend to think, well, my life isn't special. You know, this is, my life is just random. I'm just here. Uh, you know, I just, I work with these people because I took this job and then I got offered a promotion and then I couldn't afford to you know, find another job, or I live in this house because it had the right number of bedrooms and it had a garden, and actually the first choice house we wanted fell through, so we're in this one. Uh, you know, those people, well, they just, I go to the gym, they go to the gym, you know. But actually, from God's perspective, this is the field he has placed us in. 
And so, f- so the first thing we need to do, just generally, but especially with Joyfest, is start to have eyes to look around us and say, this is the field God has placed me in. So the worst thing is, you know, like, well, it'd be f- I could do all those things if God called me to Cambodia or, you know, Uganda or, you know, or to youth work or something like that. Well, God's called you just to live his kingdom life where you are. So just look around and see that differently. Don't think of it as this is just my normal life. Your normal life is a supernatural, God-present with you life. So look around your colleagues, classmates, um, neighbours, you know, the, even the strangers in the, in the street that you walk past. It's not random like we think it is. So God has placed us. So that's the first one, that we start to see the world around us slightly differently. And the second thing, which is really interesting, Ruth thought she was doing hard work in a lawless place, so there's risk and vulnerability. That's what she thinks she's doing in that field. But we know, because we see the other side of the story, that Boaz already knows about her, has told his men, protect her, leave extra for her, allow her to get access to the water. So Boaz is doing this provision and protection for her, and she doesn't even know about it. And so this, the same picture is for us. So sometimes we think, oh, you know, I'm, I want to do some joy fest for a colleague. I'm going to, you know, say, oh, do you want to come out for lunch? I'm paying. It's part of this joy fest thing. You know, or we want to go out and give donuts out to strangers on Cathedral Green. And we're like, this feels really scary. What if people say no? What if they think I'm a weirdo? What if... And so we feel like we're in a place of risk on our own, hoping that it works out. But actually, it's the same thing. Like the Boaz had already looked after Ruth. Jesus is already looking after us. He's already given us provision and protection. So it's just, it can just lift a little bit of the pressure and the vulnerability off of us. Jesus is working behind the scenes to provide and protect us. So... This is what I wanted to say today. This idea that this wonderful story that God is doing in the universe is reflected in this. And for us today, just to remember that we can take uh, an example from Ruth, this faithful service to do good things, to do the right thing, and just know that this provision and protection of Jesus is over us. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about Exeter Vineyard Church, head over to our website, www.exe.vin.